There's no one to help you up there. And don't go stirring up a lot of trouble for us. This case isn't ripe yet. Until it is, our policy with Mr. Big is live and let live. Bond looked quizzically at Captain Dexter. In my job, he said, when I come up against a man like this one, I have another motto. It's live and let die. Welcome to Genre Podcast. Our theme at the moment is spy stories. This is our first spy story. We're reading Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die, the second of the Bond novels. I'm John. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. So, John, Bob and I previously read the first James Bond novel together, Casino Royale. We loved it. As far as I know, this is your first time reading Ian Fleming. Opening opening thoughts. What did you get from this? Did you like it? Did it match up with your expectation of what you would get from a James Bond story? Yeah, you're right. I've, this is my first time reading one of Ian Fleming's novels, but obviously I've grown up watching the James Bond movies for as long as I can remember. And whenever a new Bond movie comes out, where I'm from at least, it's like a major event. It's kind of like Christmas Day for us. <laughs> so I was really excited to actually come and read the novel and think, like, how does Bond in the novel compare to Bond in the movies? I have to say, I was, I was very impressed with Bond in the novel. I think he's somewhat more sophisticated somehow than the Bond of the movies. A little bit more of a intellectual almost. For example, in this one, he shows a great interest in like marine biology and he's like reading all of the books he can possibly find on the topic of marine biology and really learning as much as possible about fish from uh, Captain... Quarrel. Captain Quarrel. And he's really learned as much as he can uh, from about these fish with Captain Quarrel. And I just don't think of... And he's also reading a lot of books about voodoo and really learning about this particular culture. So I've never really thought of Bond in the movies as someone who does all of his homework before he goes on a mission. You know, you just think he turns up and just sort of knows what to do. But here we really see that he has to lay a lot of groundwork and learn a lot from books in order to really effectively operate. It's interesting that you would say that because for me, I had almost the opposite takeaway from this book in comparison with the first book because in the first book he gives a lot of his own like theories on gambling you know like you you see him running the odds crunching mathematical numbers saying oh i only play this one game because the odds are as close to 50 50 as possible and giving a real almost like theory of how to of how to play these sports in like the most gentlemanly way possible whereas in this book I walked away feeling like that aspect of Bond had been toned down a little bit. And I think it's really interesting that from my perspective, it felt toned down from the first book. From your perspective, it felt ramped up from the films in a way that I myself didn't pick up on him doing all of this reading. But you're totally right. He does do his homework. Yeah. So I guess that just goes to show how much more, I don't want to say intellectual, but how much more, you know, in in the movies, he's really just a, a man of action, isn't he? You know, he, he's a man who does, not a man who reads about. But here, he definitely does do his reading. And he shows curiosity, like, way above what is necessary for the mission, right? He knows way more about fish than is what, than what is strictly necessary for his own survival. Although his knowledge does help him out indirectly. Hmm. I felt like that section, though, when he, when he is in the, the islands and he's studying fish, he's swimming every day and learning how to hunt the fish. So he is reading on how to survive these fish and it becomes essential to the mission eventually. I don't know if he realized how essential it was going to be, but that whole period is like a training montage of him reading, swimming out into the ocean, swimming further and further and further, getting stronger and fighting these fish. When he's doing these, they look like intellectual pursuits. Is it just to get the mission done or does he enjoy these things? Hmm. I well, I agree with you that it's like a montage sequence. I myself was imagining kind of like a tropical Rocky or like Rocky in Jamaica. But yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question because he doesn't I think I think he approaches it as a problem to be solved and he approaches it with a natural like curiosity, but I don't get the impression that he would be doing this particular reading unless he he needed to. Right? Like there's no like there's no aimless information for information's sake research that he does in this book. I think it's all very much for the sake of the mission. But he doesn't begrudge it. He doesn't begrudge those books. There are things that he does that seems only for enjoyment. They are a part of his job, but it's almost like he's attracted to the job because of them, or maybe I guess it's just a good perk. But having this extra money to eat extravagantly, eat delicious food, and he goes to great pains, he says in the first book, to eat the most complex sophisticated meals he can at any hotel. He also loves cars and he loves the ladies. 
We know he loves those three yeah. things. He he loves life. He loves life. He's a lover of life. I think that Bond's like with this personality of Bond is this man who's larger than life, who loves life, like he loves women. He loves you know beautiful women. He loves fast cars. He loves big meals. He loves swimming with fishes. Going to jazz clubs in the middle of Harlem. He he does the whole thing. And I do think that this personality of Bond is also very closely linked, perhaps, to like the greater scope of Ian Fleming's book, which is yeah, it's a spy story. And it does have all those tropes and it serves that function as a spy story. But I think it also doubles as kind of like travel voyeurism, as it were. It's like you read this book Mm. and you almost feel like you've been to Harlem. You almost feel like you've been to Jamaica. And you can really... Florida. You feel like you've been to Florida. I found found the descriptions of Florida particularly haunting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's like I feel like you can read this book and feel like, oh, yeah, you know, I know kind of like know what's all about with, you know, barracudas and sharks. You know, I know what it's like to go to Florida and just be surrounded by old people playing canasta. I know what it's like to go to Harlem and experience these jazz clubs and how they operate. So I think you can read this book and vicariously feel like you've kind of traveled the world a little bit. I think... Bond, therefore, is this figure that opens that up. So I think that, you know, Bond enjoying, like, learning about all these things more than is strictly, like, you know, pragmatically necessary, I think is also a way of Ian Fleming of, you know, getting a lot of color into his books. They're not just spy stories, but also just really encompassing. It's an excuse to just learn so much about the world. So I, I picked out actually a passage in here that I feel like exemplifies this perfectly. And this is something that we can see in the books as kind of like a Fleming's writerly voice, a very like noun heavy populating this world with with different things and different like sensations and tastes and flavors and experiences. And that's something that you can't get or you can get from film, but you don't get from Bond films. So here's a quote. He's just sat down for dinner, one of his first meals in America. Soft shell crabs with tartare sauce, flat beef hamburgers, medium rare from the charcoal grill. French fried potatoes, broccoli, mixed salad with Thousand Island dressing, ice cream with melted butterscotch, and as good a Liebfraumlich as you can get in America. Okay? It sounds fine, said Bond, with a mental reservation about the melted butterscotch. They sat down and ate steadily through each delicious course of American cooking at its rare best. You know, I picked up on this exact passage, you know. And the reason I picked up on it is because it's, you know, it's such a, a great description of the food. But I think it also really conveys bonds boredom with this as well it's like he's very blase about the whole thing you know everything that we deem as being mm-hmm. super luxurious and exciting is is boring to him he's he's so familiar with it that he, he's kind of over that he's not really interested anymore in the but i think that adds to the mystique of bond where we're reading this thinking this is incredible and bond's just like ah, i don't really care for this one particular aspect of it yeah and and i think actually with this meal too this is a very like standard american fast food meal you know what I mean? But the way that it's described is so like, like it's a list of all of the specific ingredients. I mean, mix salad with Thousand Island dressing, like, like it's like stacked up in this list. It sounds awesome. But actually, if you think about this for just one second, like you can get this, including the ice cream with melted butterscotch at a Dairy Queen. No questions asked. We can now. We can now. But you have to appreciate the great different, you know, the great, you know, economic leaps sure. and progress that's been made since this point. Yeah. I actually think the most interesting part of this passage is Bond's mental reservation about the melted butterscotch because it shows that like even if Fleming is kind of like this travel food writer kind of mind as he, you know, he's populating his prose with this, Bond as a character is still very, I guess you would say like provincial. You know, he has, he has, he's not all embracing of what he eats and sees and experiences. He has his own distinct like standards and and sets of tastes and for him melted butterscotch on ice cream is not going to cut it well i think this also reflects his he's not exactly so familiar with american culture i think he's a little bit skeptical about american culture you know being a british guy and when he comes here he has to adapt not Mm -hmm. only you know what he's eating but even what he's wearing he has to wear these very colorful suits with like pocket handkerchiefs and so forth, which he doesn't feel very comfortable with at all. Yeah, they they make him basically just pack all of his British clothes into a suitcase and send it yeah. further down the line. But one thing I really appreciated was that they were going to make him wear these moccasins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what he does is he pulls out his, his well, what he were they, the loafers, toes. I think? He feels the toes. He's like, no, this is not going to do. 
Yeah, yeah. So he saves his uh, steel-tipped like loafers, and uh, yeah, yeah. I I just thought that was funny that mm. there there are certain things he'll give up, but not his shoes. <laughs> I thought something else that was really funny about his description of uh, arriving in the U.S. was he described the signs on the road, the car signs. He said he's trying to pick up the American idiom, he says, the advertisements, the new car models, and the prices of secondhand ones in the used car lots. And he notes that in particular, the, ex, quote, exotic pungency of the road signs, soft shoulders, sharp curves, squeeze ahead, slippery when wet. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was a, a moment of Fleming's, like, poetic genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was great. Yeah. So I think that there's really funny, like, I think America is on one hand quite exotic still, you know, this is like in the 1950s, right? Yeah. So America is still kind of like an exotic thing here. This is immediately like post-World War II and everything's really on the upswing after World War II. So I think there's a sense of like luxury in going to America still. And I think Bond is not necessarily intimidated by this, but he's certainly still taking in new sites and it's still something that's very almost mm, engaging and interesting for him. And it also gives us readers a great insight into, wow, what would it be like to go to America? And, you know, he can, mm. ah, we can read Bond and he'll tell us. Yeah. It, well, and I think we can't just ignore the like intensely erotic collection of road signs that he's picked out here because he certainly left out all of the non-erotic road signs that you would see on the side of the road. Like you would, you would almost expect to to see like 69 miles per hour included in this list or something. <laughs> but like, so, but it makes me wonder, like, what, what is that about it? Does he feel a sense of eroticism about driving? Does he feel a sense of eroticism about entering a new landscape and like discovering the idiom? So like, or is it just that he has a, you know, a dirty old man eye and he's just picking out these road signs that he can find a innuendo in? Yes, a dirty old Bond. You know, just food for thought. Food for thought. Doesn't need to have an answer, but food for thought. <laughs> Speaking of dirty old Bond, we do have a new Bond girl. It seems very similar to the first book. There's a formula to Bond, I think. We had a Bond girl in the last book. We had the perfect car. We had what Bond had to learn, and we had him falling in love, and then great threat and kidnapping. Well, I have something to ask you guys, actually. Hmm. Because you asked me like what was what seemed different to me about like Bond in the book compared to Bond in the movie, and one thing that I did notice is Bond doesn't actually sleep with this Bond girl once, not once. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now my question mm -hmm. to you guys was: Does he actually sleep with a girl in Casino Royale? Yes, they have a whole honeymoon sequence. It's very similar to the honeymoon sequence in this book. It's not a honeymoon sequence in this book, but it's they're at a beach house and they're finally getting to have time together and. Yeah. And they do consummate it as they it were. Do. They consummate it, yeah. Again, because even at the end of this story, they don't. Right at first, it's like, oh, my little finger's hurting, <laughs> so we can't do it. And I'm thinking, all right, <laughs> it's only a finger. Come on, man. Like, yeah, yeah. You got a whole train carriage to yourself. <laughs> you've been talking about how beautiful this woman is for like the last hundred pages. Yeah, but all right, whatever. Then, right at the end of the story, he says, like, no, you know, I would sleep with you, but like, my my back's hurting. <laughs> so I'm thinking, like, is this? Have I missed something here? Is Bond like in the closet or something? <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. They're about to do it. So I wanted to ask if that was like a thing. I mean, I say he says at the end of this story, he says, "Well, there's a great comic bit here where he says that he's been because of his work, Emma has granted him passionate leave, and Strangeway says to him, you, it must mean compassionate.' And Bond is like, "Oh yeah, sure, <laughs> but it means passionate leave." Yeah. I, I think that there could be a couple ways to read this. Yeah. One one of which is this being a direct sequel to Casino Royale. They reference the events of Casino Royale in that in this book. Mm. In Casino Royale, he falls passionately in love. Like he's going to be with this woman the rest of his life. And I would say he makes himself vulnerable to her. And then it turns out she's an agent of of Schmersch, and he mm -hmm. has to kill her. And he it's like a it's like a a light bulb switching on or perhaps switching off you know all of all it's like he actually he actually uses a phrase in this book which is like he may feel compassion for solitaire but like that is in a separate room to his own duty as a 007 agent and it's like in that book that that separate room the door between those rooms closes and he kills her and then no, wires he, he doesn't he doesn't 
he doesn't kill her. Smash kills her. Oh, right. But he does right. consider, he, he almost gives up being a 007 agent altogether a couple times in that book. And one is because he gets so tortured that he just doesn't want that to happen again. And he doesn't know. He says, I can't believe that there's good and bad anymore. Right. I, I can't make heads or tails of it. And he's about to give up. And then he gets back into it. And then when he is going to actually to propose to her. And right at that point, he's thinking, this is too dangerous. I might give this up. And then he finds that she's dead and they've murdered her. And has a um, note that says was, yeah. where she confesses to being a double agent. Yeah. Yeah. And that exposes why they killed her, because they figured yeah. out that she was turning on them. Double, double agent. Yes. Anyways, uh, well, but then after he finds her, he sends a wire back to to London and he just says, the bitch is dead. And I felt yeah. like that was like the yeah. the coldest, most cynical bond we may ever get. Anyways, my point mm-hmm. being is I feel like we could read this as him not being willing to like make himself emotionally vulnerable again. Or perhaps we could read it as Fleming wanting to maybe like tone down the more racy aspects of his book. I don't know. Like I, I was wondering about this too. Like, it, yeah, it, could it be could it be an author aesthetic thing or could it be like a continual character development of James Bond thing? Could it be an element well, of both? I guess that's something to look forward to if we read any more Bond stories. This is one thing I'll be keeping my eye out of. Like, what, what's his actual relationship with women now? Because it's not as simple as it is in the movies. We, we've seen the movies. We've seen the movies. <laughs> Once we get to Octopussy, that might be a good answer. I noticed at one point when he, when he first meets her and he's in the train and he's saying that she will be a good diversion for him and she might be passionately in love with him, but he's not going to do that with her. And maybe he's learned his lesson as a 007 agent or maybe his heart is broken. But at the end, I noticed my audiobook had a, and this was later cut by Ian Fleming. And the, our book ends when it says... Uh, she says something about her back, and he starts to touch her. He says, what about my back, she said. And then in this extended version, it gets a little more sexy. They start. It doesn't go that further, but uh, I'll see if I can find it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, that's the last line in my book that I, that I read. Yeah. I didn't have an audio book for this one, but for most of it anyway. <clears throat> but yeah, it ends with Bond saying, oh, I can't make love because I've only got one arm. <laughs> Even though he does still have actually two arms, it's just hurting. <laughs> and... <laughs> And then there was an open sensuality in Solitaire's eyes. As she looked up at him, she smiled innocently. What about my back, she said. And then that's it. That's how it ends. I thought... So, I thought <laughs> I, perhaps it is a bit of censorship then. I thought, that was, I thought that was explicitly sexual. What about my back? I think they're... they're okay. Yeah. Okay. Just making sure that we're all on the same page. With... <laughs> yeah. My mind is wandering back to just like as a character contrast, you know, Bond says, oh, I can't do anything because my arm, my one of my arms hurts versus that movie Tombstone mm-hmm. where that guy Virgil gets his arm amputated and he says like, oh, don't worry, honey, I still got one good arm to hold you with. And it's just, you know, it shows you that mm-hmm. despite how cool James Bond is, he he doesn't have the same metal as, as a cowboy, you know, in Tombstone, Arizona. <laughs> Yes. He did get a barracuda bite out of his arm, though. Yeah. Well, that was pretty bad. Wait, sorry. One thing that I thought was pretty cool. They win to Bond and Solitaire. That's the woman's name, her fake name that we know her for most of the book. They get gunned down by the, the bad guy. They're almost eaten by sharks. The bad guy's kind of dragging them from the boat while they're going fast on the ocean. So they'll be eaten by barracudas and sharks. Then the boat explodes. Only Bond and Solitaire make it out alive. And then the narrator describes Bond carrying Solitaire all the way in from the beach into the house and gives her a whole bath, puts her in bed so she's comfortable and gives her a kiss on the head. And then it describes what has happened to Bond. (laughs) And he's like, and then Bond had to go to the hospital because a barracuda ripped a piece out of his arm the size of a fist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was bleeding everywhere. So he carried her in while this, this gigantic wound is... In his own. Yeah. That was pretty good. He's much more gentlemanly in this, in the, the, mm. this depiction of him than in the movies, I think. <laughs> Bond the gentleman. I will say I appreciated how much time I spent, like, if going back to Ian Fleming's, like, populating of everything with, like, nouns and nouns and nouns. I spent a lot of time Googling sea life, <laughs> like different fish. I mm. I realized after reading it, I had no idea what a barracuda looked like. But upon this oh, yeah. description of a barracuda as having like 
rows of overlapping teeth and teeth in its tongue itself, you know, to like pull things in. Mm-hmm. He he really makes these fish to be just monstrous. And yeah. I think having Google images open while reading this was an excellent resource. I thought the fish, I was so into the fish. My favorite chapter is chapter 15, where it's a gunfight between Bond and some lackey. But they're just shooting and blowing up full cases of fish. So fish, like exotic fish just go flying everywhere. That's pretty insane. That's the fight with uh, the robber, right? The guy who's sort of running the Ouroboros woman bait store. Yeah, he's called the robber. Yeah, yeah. It turns out they're keeping this treasure. And speaking of treasure, that's kind of like the whole plot of this book, right? I mean, the idea is we have this treasure found and then left behind by Captain Morgan. And somehow this crime syndicate run by Mr. Big of mostly these African-Americans has been running Florida where they're essentially trying to, they're, how you say, transporting or they're smuggling. They're smuggling the all of these coins worth about four million pounds, I think, four million dollars, sorry. These, these coins are worth $4 million and they're trying to smuggle them into the country. And I think that's another element of this sort of adventure story narrative here, where it's almost like, again, it's like a travel narrative where we're looking for the treasure. And actually, I just noticed uh, reading through my notes that Bond at one point picks up a book by an, an author called Patrick Lee Fermo, which is called The Traveler's Tree. And my book tells me in the footnotes here that this is one of the most popular travel stories at this hmm. time. So again, I think there's this interesting cross-generic element here with travel. Hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't quite know what to make of this pirate treasure narrative just because with the first book, it felt cold, grounded, maybe like geopolitical, cynical, mm-hmm. you know, like it was just a, a simple story of competing global interests of which Bond is merely like a figurehead and smirches you know, the uh, representing the other mm-hmm. opposite interest. This, when you're introducing like a lost pirate treasure right off the bat and the coins being dispersed into the United States to to raise up money, it, it felt like we we were folding in influences that felt like they were coming in from outside of espionage mm-hmm. stories in a way that, that mm-hmm. felt jarring to me. But I, I, I don't know. Did you guys have that ex- experience? Yeah, I agree. I thought it was, it felt like a divergence at first, and then I realized that it is almost the same plot as the first book, because the bad guy in the first book is going gambling, Casino Royale, to make enough money to fund Smersh, or to put money into Smersh, to put money into the Russian Secret Service, which America yeah. and England... Or like communist activities in Western Europe, Communist I activities think. in Western Europe, but now communist activities in America could threaten the public security of England. Right, And that's what Mr. Big is doing. He's been working with Russia, and no one exactly knows how he's working with Russia, even Solitaire, that woman who he's kind of kidnapped and trying to marry, this Mr. Big. Not even she knows what his relationship with Russia is. But that's what he's doing with the treasure money. He's going to help this Russian secret service and smash, which means death to all spies, grow and grow and grow and be a bigger threat to England and try to kill James Bond. But I think we'll see more genres folded in because last time, almost the exact same plot, but the money was earned from a casino. This one, same plot, but the money's earned from treasure, from a pirate treasure. Yeah. And it definitely does feel like a real pirate adventure novel. Even like the secret base where Mr. Big lives is guarded by sharks and barracudas because he dumps blood into the ocean all the time. So they come and they flock and that guards the treasure. Very, very adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also these really interesting elements of voodoo brought in here to mm. add more, much more color to the narrative, you might say. Like the, the rumor is going around that this guy, Mr. Big, is an almost divine or mythical figure. They say he's mm. the zombie or living corpse of Baron Samedi, who is kind of like the Prince of Darkness or sort of Satan himself in voodoo <clears throat> mythology or voodoo uh, beliefs the video religion so he's almost like a he's a very much a larger than life figure and the mm-hmm. description of mr big is is fascinating indeed mm-hmm. he's described as having a great football of a head twice the normal size and very nearly round he's got his gray skin that's pulled tight over his face 
His eyes are kind of like yellowed. He has no eyebrows, no eyelashes. Mm-hmm. He's enormous, like physically enormous. He's like well in advance of six foot. And he's described as being almost monstrous. I'm not sure how much is that of that is like latent racism, but he's definitely described as being a very larger than life mythical figure. Lar- which I think, again, adds way more, a lot of color to this narrative. You know, he's, he's almost an inhuman villain. Yeah, larger than life and outside of life, too. I mean, he's the head of the Black Widow voodoo cult. And everyone in this cult believes him to be, so, quote, everyone in the cult believed him to be the Baron Samadhi himself. Now, Baron Samadhi, the the figure basically of death in this in this religion, the person who, you know, brings souls into the underworld. And every time we see Mr. Big, he actually has... What would you call that? Not like a talisman? He has a cross with a coat on it and a top hat. Which oh, is an the, effigy. An effigy. Of, yeah, he has an effigy. Yeah, of this god, the Baron Semedi. And it's it's interesting how this god is tied up with, like, notions of zombies, you know? In in this, like, the, the Haitian zombie. And it's implied that people think that Bar- that Mr. Big wields the power of Baron Semedi, but also Mr. Big could be a zombie of Baron Semedi himself. Mm. He seems to be wielding his like political, uh, like underworld power by tapping into this divine, like like th- like people's fear of the divine and the the otherworldly. One of my favorite parts of that describes Mr. Big really well and how much these. The followers like look up to him. He doesn't actually believe in voodoo. He just finds that all of these other people do and he's using it for his power. And at one point when he's torturing Bond, he's telling Bond all about his plans, you know, doing the classic villain denouement. And then he leaves for a second and Bond says, and everyone kept working as if he was right behind them, knowing that only the zombie of Baron Samity was leaving because Baron Samity is now everywhere. So Mr. Big is everywhere. Yeah. You're always afraid of him. But I think he's a really interesting villain, too. He's not just this scary giant guy. He's also like a villainous genius. When he tells Bond about why he's torturing him and why he's not killing him, here's his quote. He says, Mr. Bond, I take pleasure now only in artistry, in the polish and finesse which I can bring to my operations. Then he says, Mm -hmm. I try and set myself still higher standards of subtlety and technical polish so that each of my proceedings may be a work of art. So he's a very interesting villain. Yeah, definitely. You know, I picked up exactly the same quote, but I actually had it in front of me. I was like, right, when he finishes speaking, I'm going to bring in this exact quote that you just said. I just think it's so fascinating (laughs) that this guy is like, you know, using voodoo to control people almost like as a political maneuver. And then there's this other mm-hmm. side. So I guess you would say that's that's Mr. Big, the political engineer. And then you've got Mr. Big. Yeah, the Machiavellian Mr. Big. Yeah, the Machiavellian <laughs> Mr. Big. But then we also have on this other hand this Mr. Big, the aesthete. You know, he's just he just, just mm-hmm. takes pleasure in the finer things. And he wants to do things in a refined manner. He's bored with doing anything conventional. He's He's gone mm-hmm. past the point of anything conventional, any conventional villainy. You know, he knows his gun mm-hmm. works. He says at one point, he knows my gun works. <laughs> yeah. I know my gun works, so I don't need yeah, to prove it yeah. to anyone. And so I, he yeah. does things, you know, to for the refinement, to be ever more refined in his actions. And in essence, I actually think that's one point of similarity between Mr. Big, the villain, and the hero, Bond. Because I think Bond is similarly like very bored. Like the opening scene of this story is he's going through sort of various FBI checks, essentially security checks, so he can get into the US. And he's just... It's describing all of these luxurious things and this sort of fabulous lifestyle of the spy. Mm -hmm. And he just seems so bored with it. He just sounds utterly bored with it. He's completely over it. So I think that this is a point of sympathy between the two of them. I think Mr. Big and Bond understand each other in this Yeah, to to back that up with Bond, I would point out like moments in the train car when Bond knows they're going to be attacked in the night. So Bond like runs through like a mental checklist of like, Okay, so like nothing can come up through like the the sewer pipes. There's an air vent there, but it would be too messy to gas them because then it would kill everyone on the train car. Like you can tell that Bond is operating as someone who's seen it all, who knows all the tricks in the book. And I I personally didn't pick up on that boredom, but now that you say it and I think about the way he describes just kind of like the the rote 
checking off the checklist of ways that people will try to kill him. It actually, I, I do see what you're saying. I, see, I feel the boredom is very apparent in the prose style too. And every time I start a Bond book, I'm always like, I don't fucking care for like the first few chapters, everything that's happening. Because mm. all it is is I put on my shoes and he tells you exactly what kind of shoes they were. I drove this kind of car and it tells you exactly what kind of car it is. And I get lulled into thinking that I'm bored about everything. And then suddenly we have Mr. Big like this incredible villain who's, you know, a dying man. That's why he's gray. He's got a heart problem and he looks like a gray zombie. And then we have like Bond fighting with an octopus at one point, Bond and the robber exploding yeah. fish tanks. We have all of this like exotica and that's when it gets exciting. Yeah, but it's still very sober the way it's written. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, he, here at the beginning, Bond thinks... It says here that he's going through the security checks with the FBI and then the person with his passport says, hope you enjoy your stay, Mr. Bond. Bond shrugs his shoulders and follows the other passengers through the wire fence towards a door marked US Health Service. And then he says, in his case, unlike these other people, it was only a boring routine. Yeah, yeah. But he accepts it as part of his trade. He says, anonymity is the chief tool of my trade and, you know, it has to happen. But he's very much bored with a lot of aspects of his life, even when he's treated like royalty. What about, I wanted to ask you, Zach, what about Leiter? You were looking forward to seeing Leiter again, the CIA agent from Texas. Yeah. Uh, We got him in this book, but... Leiter, yeah, Leiter was interesting because he was explicitly written as a Texas man in Casino Royale which has its own charm Mm. and quirk. But in this one, he just seems, huh, how would I put this? So the chief characterization I would say that Leiter has is he's like an expert in African-American culture of the time. Mm. So I I feel like the emblematic Leiter moment is when (laughs) they're captured by, yeah, they're captured and being tortured and, you know, Bond is, you know, getting his hand broken and, getting beat up, you know, yada, yada, yada. Leiter is sent off to another room where he, where Bond learns that he will be, you know, absolutely beaten to a pulp, but not killed, you know. But when we meet up with Leiter again, it find, we find out that Leiter has been talking with his African-American captors about jazz music. And he has all of these opinions like, oh, I, you know, I didn't save them, unfortunately. But, yeah, I got you some. know, like, I got some. Oh, please read them. Please read them. Well, I found it, the passage on here. Yeah, so essentially he's telling, Leiter's telling Bond how he got out of it. And he says, when no instructions came from the big man, they got bored and I got to argue in the finer points of jazz with Blabbermouth, the man with the fancy six-shooter. We got on to Duke Ellington and agreed that we liked our band leaders to be percussion men, not wind. We agreed the piano or the drums held the band together better than any other solo instrument. (laughs) Jelly Roll Morton, for instance. So I love this lights his character where he's just this expert in jazz and he can use it to get along with this group of people that bond has absolutely no affinity with mm-hmm. whatsoever he's a great character yeah yeah and i think again this is an important aspect of like bonds like american experience you know going to america and then essentially be like part of his motivation for even going to america i think was in order to see lighter again like it's not just you that's looking forward to seeing him zach bond yeah, himself absolutely. was kind of looking forward to seeing felix lighter and then he you know gets his opportunity they're really like like bros you know they're, yeah. they're big yeah they're great friends <laughs> they drink whiskey yeah. together they go out to jazz bars together they talk you know they 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 talk about women together they, they're very much uh similar guys with very different areas yeah of and i i would say that this might be a point where i would bring up how like speaking of folding in other genres and other tropes the first half of this book when they're in harlem to me, it feels like it borrows a lot from like black exploitation films, or I guess like black exploitation novels. And to me, I feel like Leiter here is playing the role of the the like initiate, the guide, whereas Bond is the person who knows absolutely nothing mm. and everything is strange. And there's an element of mm. I don't want to say horrifying, but just like mystery. Though, when they have this moment when they're in the club and and the woman starts stripping and you know, the music is playing and everyone is going into this like reverie and 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 shouting and 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 it says like cursing and saying lewd things. And the MC himself, who you would expect the MC of the show to be the most cynical person there, has sweat dripping from his chin. From from the perspective of the narrator of this book, from Bond's perspective, this has to just look insane. 
there there is an element of just like shock and lack of understanding this is something outside of the world of bond but lighter has access to this lighter is occupying a middle position it's a really interesting place for him to occupy and it doesn't quite ring as the same lighter we met in the first book mm-hmm. but what what yeah. would you say they differ how you know i've not read the first book so what what's different here he just leaves you feeling like he's an easygoing guy. He's not really an expert in anything, but he's there to assist Bond. He's good time lighter. In the context of the casino. Good time lighter. He's good time lighter. Here he is too. He's Yeah. If if they were to make a like a modern day movie of this, I feel like you would cast Owen Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so that's interesting because yeah, in the first book I would definitely cast Owen Wilson. Wow. In this book, I don't know who I would cast because it's someone who's sharp and encyclopedic and clever i feel like owen wilson because he gets captured by somebody and he's joking around like it's just no big deal it's he's very owen wilson yeah okay it's interesting that i didn't take the character of felix Leiter as interesting or noteworthy at all in my time watching the bond movies but now i feel like he's one of the most crucial characters of the the mythology from reading the books yeah I noticed something as well cool about like Felix Leiter on the part of Ian Fleming. I think his name itself, Leiter, is someone some with a light touch or a certain levity mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Felix Leiter. I think that was very smart. Yeah. Lucky light. Lucky light. I mean, even when he gets like molten, he gets eaten alive by a shark, yeah. he loses an arm and a leg, and he sends a message through to Bond before Bond is due to some to come to the final battle with the villain he sends a message saying he i'm sorry not to be with you bond and to tell you not to get your feet wet or at any rate not as wet as i did referring to the fact that he got eaten alive by a shark yeah so (laughs) i do think felix leiter really does give like a light touch of this story i think the book would be a lot more cynical without leiter in it Mm. what do you guys think about bond like to me he seemed like a really pessimistic character do you guys agree with that yeah i'd say he feels pessimistic He's not that excited about a lot of things. But it hasn't dampened his, like, appetites. You know what I mm. mean? Pessimistic, sure, but he's still, oh, like, yeah. omnivorous. Yeah. I f- in his mm. in his gaze, in his yeah. desires, in his, you know. I feel like there's a very interesting, yeah, like, there's a very interesting aspect to Bond. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm struggling to place him. Like, is he, a, is he a pessimist? Is he a sort of a stoic type character? Is he a, a hedonist? Like, who is he? Like, he says here... There's a quote here that I thought was very interesting, like reflection of his psychology. He says, there's nothing to do about it. You start to die the moment you are born. The whole of life is cutting through the pack with death. So take it easy. Light a cigarette and be grateful you're still alive as you suck the smoke deep into your lungs. I think this is a very interesting attitude. Like, How would you play as Bond? Is he a pessimist that says all life is meaningless, so just smoke cigarettes and wait to die? But I don't think that's... True, because he's also talking about how he's enjoying smoking the cigarette. And he he, mm. he feels like a real imperative to help out this girl solitaire, like you've already mentioned, even when it's not necessarily to his like carnal advantage. So he's not just a, a you know, a carnivore who's just trying to pursue all his different interests, like drive fast cars, sleep with beautiful women. But there is something more to yeah. Bond, like a kind of a you know, a very humane center to him, I think. And again, that's something I don't really think of when I think of like the movie Bond. I don't think of someone who cares, but here as like it's, it's clear that his actions reflect someone who cares about other Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like this passage that you highlighted, and this passage actually goes on for, for some time, longer than you read, is a moment of psychological revelation about Bond. And this is actually the Bond that I recognized from the first book. This is This is like, to me, that passage was the through line between the characterization that we get in book one to book two. How I would characterize that in terms of cynicism, I I am not sure, but the immediately following sentence, I think, does reveal something. It's, he seems to be addressing himself here. Your stars have already let you come quite a long way since you left your mother's womb and whimpered at the cold air of the world. Perhaps they'll even let you get to Jamaica tonight. So he's he's like recognizing his place as, you know, so like the stars have let him come. He is someone who is under the whims of fate, you know, and from his mother's womb. So mm-hmm. he's recognizing himself as someone who is born and who will die, you know, kind of like a transitory figure in this world. But then when he says, perhaps they'll even let you go to Jamaica tonight. To me, this is this is like a tiny prayer, 
you know, he's he's giving a hope that he will make it long enough to get there. And I think that that is a really interesting like like what can we make of this? He he recognizes himself under fate, but but still he'll he'll give a prayer to them. He'll he'll say like I want this. And what is it that he wants? He wants to to save solitaire. I think in the first book you know, we have Lighter return, full, you know, wrapped in bandages. You can't see him. He's almost dead. In the first book, the same thing happens to Bond when he's tortured. And that's when he thinks about giving up, doing the good thing, being a secret agent, saving the world. He thinks that the world can just go and die. And his best friend, who does not occur in this book, his other best friend, not Lighter, but the French secret agent, comes and visits him and kind of oh, gives yeah. him a pep yeah. talk. And it sounds a little bit like what Bond is saying here. And he concludes saying, you know, you align yourself with the people you care about. Even if you can't tell if the Russians are good or the Americans are good, it's the people who are near you that you have to defend. So Bond is, you know, obviously he has to save Solitaire. He saves a woman in the last book. But now there's no delay, I guess. I think he's learned since talking to his friend, and now he's got this extra bit, I guess just thanking your lucky stars you're alive. There's another part in that big paragraph where it says, you're still alive, aren't you? So he learned a lesson in the last book, and he's at least talking himself through a lesson in this book. He seems to change a little bit book book to book, even though he's kind of just an adventure hero. Yeah. I, this doesn't feel pre-planned to me. It doesn't feel like Fleming has like charted out a series-wide narrative arc for Bond. It seems to me more like Fleming himself is... Mm-hmm. If, you, if you were to say that Bond is like the, the, the ideal you know, cynical character in this world that Fleming is kind of like populating with some of his own thoughts, some of what he thinks someone like Bond would say. It seems like Mm. Fleming's idea of who this person is, is changing as Fleming, you know, as the years go by for Fleming. Uh, But I think that we'll have to read a few more books in this series to really get a better idea of of who Bond is, how he's changing. And yeah, definitely, you know, speculate as to Fleming's. I think it's, I think it's maybe, it's hard to exactly find like what it is that's driving Bond. Like it's, I don't think it's just pleasure, but it is a little bit like pleasure. It's not just, it's not just because it's his job because he does really enjoy his job. I think it seems like there's many mm. different things motivating him rather than any one particular factor. And I wonder if that's indicative of the fact that Bond is not really supposed to be like a real person, but he is like a, a, the ideal of what a man should be. And I think it's part of what a man is to do his duty to do his job it's part of a man's function to protect people it's part of a man's function to you know have relationships with women and guys Mm. and be a man of the world so i think in a sense like bond just reflects all of these kind of uh implicit like imperatives of what a man should be as a sort of species rather than as a as an individual right i don't think there is much that really defines bond as an individual but you know we can't imagine that men are supposed to be self-pitying or supposed to be too cynical about the world and just drinking themselves to death and so forth. Like he drinks a lot, but he doesn't let it affect his his job. So I think there really is a reflection here of like an ideal of what a man should be. And Bond is kind of just like embodying whatever that is in a particular moment. So if he needs to, you know, fight barracudas, he'll fight barracudas. Yeah. If he needs to be in a gun shootout, he'll he'll be in a shootout. You know, if he needs to, <clears throat> whatever it is, he's he can he's the man who can meet the occasion. Yeah. I do think it's worth pointing out that while he is a famous drinker, during his like rocky beach montage scene, he makes mention at the end of it that it's mm. been a week since he's had any alcohol. Mm. And that points to a level of like self-control to me. Like he's not a like even if some of his statements mirror Mickey Spillane's worldview, like Mike Hammer's worldview in some some moments that kind of have that resonance. Mm-hmm. He is very much in control of his drinking and his appetites and his and his habits. And I think that's interesting mm. that he can put a pause on things when the mission calls mm. for him to do so. Yeah. And he only drinks right before the mission just to calm his nerves a little bit. So, you know, drinking yeah. is not something yeah. he does for the love of it or for the pleasure or from any kind of need. Because, again, I think it would be an imperfect reflection of the ideal male to be addicted to something. I don't think that fits with Absolutely. what the ideal man would be. And therefore, it's not something that Bond would do. You know, yeah. he is, the ideal yeah. person is sort of, or the ideal man, I think, in this context is one who can meet every occasion. And that's what Bond does. Mm. And part of that might be drinking. If he's going to a club, he needs to fit in. So he's going to drink. Or if he needs to calm his nerves, he'll drink. But it is purely f- for this reason. 
And I think meet every occasion also includes the the geographical distance that they cover mm-hmm. in this book. Mm-hmm. You know, he he physically won't fit in in the scenes in Harlem that take place in this book, but there is a sense in which he gets along just fine. You know what I mean? He he is able to actually enter these clubs and spend a night out in Harlem without any real like rejection, so to speak. And the same with Florida, you know, he's, he's he manages mm-hmm. to go down there under disguise and even Jamaica, too. So I think that that is that kind of like Mr. Worldwide, you know, is is part of Fleming's like imaginary ideal man. I don't have much more to talk about, but I do have a big theory to dump on you guys that we could either cut out or keep because I feel like it's boring to to listen to someone lay out their entire theory on the narrative structure of this book. But I've been thinking about it, and I got it. All right, guys. I want you to picture clearly in your mind H.P. Lovecraft, okay? Who is the villain in this book? The villain of this book is a character who, by reputation and through symbol, is like the god of the underworld, the person who seemingly travels from, from beyond death to life and then back again, you know, taking souls with him as he goes. You can imagine this story as a kind of descent into the underworld, or at least a conf- like a confrontation with a cosmic horror. So we first get a taste of it in Harlem, and I would say that 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 stripping scene is a kind of like you know the crowd goes up in this like manic ritualistic. They have a like an ecstatic experience, but it's only brief and momentary, and then. Bond, you know, gets pulled into another room and kind of like wakes up from it. It's just a taste. Then they go down to Florida. How is Florida characterized? Florida is characterized. Old people. Every, yeah. Old people. Every, it, it's like a land of, of death. Retirement. Still, still in the world of the living, but it's populated only by mm. the almost dead. Finally, you know, we go down to Jamaica. What we do here is we enter the ocean. And I'm just going to read this quote to you because this is the moment when he's, it's dark out. He's swimming underneath the rocks. And he flips on his flashlight just for a minute. And this is what he sees. Now, up against the reef, there was no reflection from the bottom, and the shadows under the rocks were black and impenetrable. He risked a quick glance with his pencil torch, and immediately the underbelly of the mass of brown tree coral came alive. Anemones with crimson centers waved their velvet tentacles at him. A colony of black sea eggs moved their Toledo steel spines in sudden alarm and a hairy sea centipede halted in its hundred strides and questioned with its eyeless head. Fleming is describing this, this oceanic underworld as utterly inhuman and monstrous, tentacled, you know, an eyeless head. And then we find out that Mr. Big is beating these drums and, and, and using and dumping blood in the ocean and using this, mm cosmic horror underworld under his power like in in like to defend his place like the ocean is under the power of mr big i just feel like what what fleming has done here is given us this like journey into hell where bond then goes and like kills the god of the underworld in a sense very symbolically i think we can cut all this Mm. but this is this is what I this is what I read. You know, this is what I this is the pattern I was seeing. You know, I think there's a lot to that. I think there's a lot to that. And I think that if Fleming didn't explicitly tie Mr. Big's character to this god, like every single scene we have the effigy of the Baron Semity, you know, I think that it would be a little bit more far fetched. But I do think that there is an element of like like steal not stealing the beats, but taking influence from the beats of a horror novel where where you know you start with just a little and then finally the revelation at the end with our hero coming out triumphant yeah i I definitely think that's the case or at least i think there's a a sense in which the the world of death in a sense or the the dimension the dimension of death the dimension of death is somehow like encroaching on the land of the living i think in getting rid of mr big i think symbolically there is this sense of getting rid of that and expelling that so that life can flourish again. Mm, so I think yeah. it's interesting, like you've mentioned yeah. that the ocean is seems mm. to be ruled in a sense by Mr. Big because mm. he's putting blood and offal into the oceans and then thereby sort of controlling all of the life underneath. And the people who watch him doing this, the native people, actually think he is doing voodoo. 
But then you can also contrast that with like the drums as well. Yeah. But then there's also this. Yeah. And the drums. Let's not forget the drums too. The drums stir the fish into a, a mob-like frenzy. Yeah. But then there's also the sense in which these islands, the Cayman Islands, are very much like teeming mm-hmm. with life as well. Yeah. So I think like you're saying, like, it's like almost like a borderline between life and death here. And I think, you know, Bond definitely represents life. He's a lover of life. He loves, you know, all the things that, you know, really pulse with life, right? Like hmm. women, fast cars, good food, nice clothes, music, learning, right? The, the, and Bond, Bond like seeks after life. He's just, he loves physicality. Yeah, you know, physicality. He's, he's running, he's rowing, yeah. he's scuba diving. Yeah, and Mr. Big seems like exactly, they said, a figure of death. So I think that is, yeah, perhaps maybe like the central conflict here. It's a good old, like, good and evil story, I think. And in the end, it's life that prevails over death. And, you know, even in the fact that, like, Lighter survives what very much could have killed him. Bond, like, nearly dies a couple of times. So I do think that, yeah, that that certainly seems to be the strand of Bond. And I wonder if that's, like, the common theme for the other books as well. Well, there's one thing I wanted to point out that we, we noticed when Zach and I read the first book. We were really happy to see how in love Bond was. He seemed to be describing things like he never had before. He was It was a new lust for life that wasn't at arm's distance. It was very close. But we realized if he did get married, that would be the end of Bond. It would be book one, no more James Bond books. When they go to Florida, it is very much like the land of death. Here's the, the beginning quote. He goes with Solitaire, by the way, with the love interest, the woman he wants to marry. And she says... Quote, everybody's nearly dead in St. Petersburg. It's the great American graveyard. They just sit in the sun and gossip and daze. It's a terrifying sight. All these old people with their spectacles and hearing aids and clicking false teeth. But... I like that quote. Yeah. She goes on to say, because they're bonding, you know, bond and solitaire. And then she finally kind of, no pun intended, she stops them on the street. After describing all of this horrible, horrible death scene, she says, will you settle down with me and grow old gracefully in St. Petersburg? <laughs> so the, the going down to hell or going into the land of death is another threat because it's another potential for happiness for Bond. If he settles down, that's the end of Bond. Yeah. I wonder if there's also like an imperative here of like, maybe that's the moral of this story or the morality of Bond is like, there's this imperative of like, especially like with Florida and this place, St. Petersburg, there's a sense in which maybe those people don't really realize that they are just sort of wasting their lives away. And I think there's an imperative in Bond. What Bond mm. exhorts us to do is to to live, live fully, go out there, travel, see the world, and you know, really embrace life and grab the bull by the horns, as it were. I think that's like the mm-hmm. message of Bond in opposition to either believing in some guy who's preaching death or in just wasting mm-hmm. your life away. Live and let them die. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. All right, that's all for this week's episode where we've been reading Ian Fleming's James Bond novel, Live and Let Die. Next time, we'll be reading The 39 Steps by John Buchan as we continue spy theme. <laughs> Hopefully see you there. Please, please. We need to see you there. <laughs> Talk to you later, Zach and John. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Wait, talk... T- I guess, wait, talk to you later, John and Bob. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. Wait, what? Talk to you later, John and Zach. I think we're good. (laughs) 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 All right, okay.